Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. And I'm Alice Denby, the deputy editor of CapEx. And today we are delighted to welcome, I think it's probably a bit overdue actually, a long time stalwart of CapEx and the Tufton Street think tank world, the head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs, Christopher Snowden. Chris, welcome to the podcast. I think this is your debut. I think it's since I've been editor, it certainly is. It is, yeah. Uh, Chris, we've got plenty to to discuss. I want to kick off with your kind of your stock in trade, certainly as a CapEx contributor, which is the sort of nonsensical nanny statist public health stuff that we've kind of become inured to in this country. Um, let's kick off with a piece you wrote for us earlier this week. Um, and this is about the attempts or the proposal to reduce the number of calories in certain categories of food. And this will apparently save the nation a billion calories cumulatively a year. I mean, could you just start, what's actually going on with this proposal? I mean, what, what do they, this is Nestor, I believe, it's a kind of arm's length charity. What, what do they have in mind? Well, they have in mind a mandatory target for the food industry to take 10%, at least 10% of the calories out of 10 categories of food that they've identified as being particularly unnecessary in the modern diet. Things like ready meals and um, crisps and, uh, you know, chocolate and, and so on. T- tasty, tasty treats, really. Um, and they think that rather than telling people who are trying to watch their weight to maybe not eat chocolate and crisps all the time, it would be much easier for the government to force the food industry to take out a relatively small amount, but still actually a difficult amount to take out, um, of calories from these products. And um, this is an idea that Public Health England originally came up with in the um, middle of the last decade. Um, there's there's a big sort of man-in-the-pub element to public policy making, really, which is that a lot of the time they just come up with things that somebody who doesn't know anything about the market at all uh, doesn't know anything about the the product that they're trying to regulate might come up with after a number of drinks and um, just taking ingredients various important ingredients out of food was one of them but because it was public health england um came up with it rather than some bar fly it actually had legs and a lot of money was put into their reformulation program which initially was that they're going to take 20 percent of, of sugar out of virtually all um 
packaged or processed food. That target was for 2020. They then introduced a calorie target. I think it was 20% calories had to be removed by 2024. There are always various salt targets. And I think Public Health England was working on a saturated fat target, which I don't think ever came in. They were closed down, of course, in 2021 for being useless during COVID. Um, and none of this stuff is is practical. And there's a real kind of philosopher king element to this where you know, these bureaucrats just come up with the targets and then say some kind words to industry about how innovative British food industry is. And I'm sure you can manage to do this. And um, in, to be fair, in some categories, you can do it. We have taken salt out of quite a few products over the years, um, but they tend to be products where, um, you know, you've got a lot of salt there to begin with and there isn't any really any other flavor apart from salt crisps being a good example peanuts being another you can take 10 percent of the salt out of a pack of peanuts and most people will still you know find it nice and salty right um sugar becomes more difficult when you're dealing with inherently sugary products like sweets and chocolate artificial sweeteners don't really work in these products if you've ever had a diabetic biscuit or anything you'll know that they're not very nice most people don't really like the taste of artificial sweetness some people really hate them um you need the sugar for texture a lot of the time certainly for weight it's not like a sugary drink where you can just put in artificial sweeteners um because you don't care about the texture or weight of a of a drink but again these people don't know what they're talking about so they just assume that because it's possible to create a zero sugar drink you can do the same with a, a boiled sweet um and you can't of course and in the end the um, sugar reduction scheme ended up taking 3% of sugar out of food overall, larger in some categories, about 12, 13% in things like breakfast cereals and yogurts. Um, but even that fairly feeble effort didn't actually result in, in human beings in, in Britain actually consuming less sugar from food. Uh, in fact, there was a slight rise in the amount of sugar people consumed from food because people didn't eat so many breakfast cereals and yogurts after they were reformulated, presumably because they didn't taste as nice, but they did eat more chocolate and confectionery, which hadn't been reformulated and still tasted delicious. So, um, you know, the, the best laid plans of mice and men, really. And I thought it kind of been forgotten about until Nesta, who seemed to have a big work stream on obesity at the moment, big state funded charity, hundreds of millions of pounds, I think it gets from the taxpayer. They decided to revive it but with the added twist that it would be legally binding, whatever that means. Is there not an argument? I, I mean, we can say that reformulation doesn't work, but is there an argument that given the obesity crisis we are facing, what is it like one in five children starting, you know, leaving primary school obese and the massive impact that that has on all of public services, not least the NHS, that there is a role for the government here in trying to tackle obesity, albeit that this might be not the way to go about it. Well, firstly, I'm going to hold you up on this figure of one in five kids leaving school obese. I'd, I'd let it slide if it was news night or something like that because it's too much to <laughs> get into. But the way we measure child obesity in this country, as, as anyone who's looked in any detail at the methodology, is com a, a complete nonsense. And in fact, anyone who has a child at school you know, who, who picks up children from the school gate will notice that it's not, it's actually one in three overweight or obese, um, or one in five supposedly clinically obese. The, the the real figure is nowhere near that. For various reasons I won't get into because it, it gets a bit complex. Um, we essentially drew a line in the sand to measure childhood obesity, and that line had nothing to do with whether children were actually fat or not. Um, now, call me an old stickler, but I think an obese child should look fat or at least a bit pudgy, um, and a lot of the children who are classified, a lot of the children who are classified as overweight or obese, in fact, the majority of them are not 
in any way, shape, form, um, overweight or obese. So the, the figures on child obesity are way, way out. And child obesity actually still is, is a relatively rare condition. Uh, and I suspect it's usually down to lack of exercise rather than too many crisps of chocolate. I think any reasonably active child would find it very difficult actually to, to be obese. Um, should the government do anything? Well, on what's the justification for them doing something? I mean, I would look at it from an economic point of view and say, well, is there a market failure here? And it's possible there would be. It is possible that there would be what economists call it information asymmetry. So you've got a systematically under-informed population who are stuffing cakes and biscuits down their throat, thinking that they're actually diet foods um, and not realising actually that celery and carrots have far fewer calories and be better off eating them. I don't think that's really true. Um, there is now mandatory labelling in, um, on, in on menus in restaurants and stuff like that. So it'd be interesting to see if that makes any difference. I suspect not. I think probably it just makes people feel a bit guilty about eating the various foods, but they still eat them. Um, so yeah, I think the idea that people are just uneducated about this is probably wrong. And even if people aren't perfectly informed, I think they're well enough informed to know the difference between, you know, a cream cake and, um, and a, you know, a rice cracker. Um, and then you get onto the question of negative externalities, which is usually used as the excuse for action in, in, in all these areas, whether it's uh, you know, smoking, drinking, obesity, even gambling these days. There's a, there will be claims that these things are costing the taxpayer billions of pounds. Um, nearly always untrue, um, particularly untrue when we're taxing the product itself to the tune of millions of billions of pounds, as we do with tobacco and alcohol. Um um, and also tends to be untrue because when the when the costs are supposedly to the health service, you do have to look at what the counterfactual would be if, if people weren't smoking or weren't obese and so on. And generally speaking, the counterfactual involves a lot more people being alive and being old, which is great for them. Um, but in terms of saving the health service money, it's it actually counterproductive. Um, and this argument is very easily misinterpreted as being some kind of call for euthanasia. It's not at all. It's just a rebuttal to the claim, which is quite untrue, that the health service would require less funding if there were more very old people tottering around because they hadn't died of a heart attack from, as a result of being obese. So your only real justification is just sheer paternalism, which I would reject out of hand, really. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, that leads me quite neatly on to my next question. I wanted to kind of draw out uh, draw back a little bit. Paternalism in one form or another has been with us, you know, since human society. But how do you trace the kind of evolution of the current public health state? I mean, has it, is there a kind of inflection point where you think things got noticeably worse with a particular government or a particular set of reforms? Or has it, is it kind of drip, drip? How do you kind of trace that timeline? Um, which of course included Brown's uh, time. That was really the turning point. Um, I think you could see the signs of it during his second term. The, the Blair's first term was actually relatively liberal. You know, we had the um, the plans to relax drinking regulations, the licensing laws, so-called 24-hour drinking came in, um, and also relaxing the gambling laws, which the Tories are now apparently in the process of trying to reverse. Um, so that was all quite good stuff. And then you get into the... Um, you know, around about 2004, with the backlash from Iraq, the backbenches were getting more and more leery, and he became um, a bit more authoritarian. He had the, the ban on 
fox hunting, which isn't a, a massive issue for me, but it did seem to be kind of going against the evidence in terms of animal welfare. Um, and uh, and then the smoking ban, which was, you know, really the point at which the nanny state crossed the Rubicon, I think, because prior to that, it'd been mainly about, well, insofar as there was nanny state legislation, there wasn't a great deal of it, but it tended to be at least seen as being regulation of the industry. You know, so, okay, the industry can't advertise cigarettes anymore and what have you. And these things do have a knock-on effect to consumers, but primarily the the, the, the people who get annoyed by it are the, are the industry. Whereas with the smoking ban, you're directly targeting people. You, you, you're, you're telling people that they cannot do something that at the time was really very common and actually not particularly controversial, really. I mean, it took a big campaign to whip up... Um, concerned about this from from most people and so and then you had uh brown came in and um and he was fairly instinctively paternalistic and then the tories said they'd be different but they weren't particularly on on tobacco they introduced a display ban on the plain packaging and uh, various other things banning smoking cars vending machines everything a whole lot of stuff so by the time you get to theresa may there wasn't really much left to do but of course by that time the public health lobby had long since moved on to other targets in addition to smoking they uh, they haven't had much success so far on alcohol except in scotland uh, and indeed wales where the minimum pricing came in and now scotland are looking to restrict advertising for alcohol as much as possible um but they got a bit further with obesity which was a funny one really because it went back and forth the obesity plans you know as I say, there, there, there were a lot of sort of bloke in the pub ideas, which you know might seem to somebody who hasn't really thought about it very much, like oh, this that's bound to work, um, and a lot of it was just taken from the anti-tobacco blueprint, really. So okay, we'll ban we ban advertising for cigarettes. Let's ban advertising for you know cheese and and, and chocolate bars, um, and then there was some slightly more original stuff in terms of telling um, supermarkets where they can position their so-called junk food. Uh, there was a sugar tax, of course, that came in prior to that, which was really the thing that kicked off the um, anti-obesity legislation. And was really, to be honest, was the main reason I opposed the sugar tax. You know, there was lots of reasons to be against the sugar tax. But for me, it was just be, well, you, once you crack open that door, you're never going to close it again because the sugar tax isn't going to work. But by introducing it, you've already shown that you think that this is an area where the government needs to you know, intervene. So you'll have taxes and all sorts of things soon. And of course, public health people indeed do want taxes on uh, junk food or sugar or uh, or salt even, which doesn't even contain any calories. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, it, it, I think it, it, the intellectual origins of it, if that's not too grand a word for a bunch of you know, miserable Puritans getting together and lobbying the government, um, I think came around more or less in the, in the 1970s initially, uh, partly because you had the... The, the genesis of a uh, kind of anti-smoking movement, which would then be emulated by other people who have got to be in their bonnet about particular activities. But also you, you saw in the West um, that infectious diseases were really no longer much of a problem. And insofar as they were a problem, we had them under control with, you know, with jabs and, and medicines. Uh, and so what did that leave the people in public health to do? Well, they had to start focusing on what they now call non-communicable diseases. Um, and the risk factors for those are, well, insofar as there are controllable risk factors, they tend to be to do with, with lifestyle. And therefore, the new public health movement became about regulating. 
Yeah, I think it's worth reminding listeners, as, as you said, about, about the sugar tax, that the initial proposal was that it would raise revenue, which would pay for school sports. So that obviously didn't happen because they just reformulated the drinks. And I think you do see this kind of um, this idea uh, perpetuate itself in policymaking that, you know, you'll, you'll do one thing. So you'll abolish non-DOMs and that you can therefore pay for some other completely unrelated thing. And it does seem to be a feature, particularly in um, British policy discourse but but i wonder if if you think if you see that same um uh similar ideas repeated elsewhere in the world or do you think this is a particular feature of british pol- politics oh no it's been copied around the world um uh, and it tends to be for whatever reason tends to be english-speaking countries leading the way on it usually um australia is an incredible nanny state i mean just fanatical New Zealand is very much gone in the same direction. Bits of America are very puritanical. Others, of course, aren't. But it's a, a big place, America. But, you know, California has kind of always been very, very loopy about this kind of stuff. Like completely, um, uh, you know, yeah, paranoid. Um, very worried about the health all the time, about any pop- possible thing. Everything's got to, like, may cause cancer label on it um so yeah it tends to be uh the english-speaking world uh protestant world some people have said um the scandinavians like a bit of their paternalism um and then countries in southern europe tend to be a bit more chilled out about it but that is changing you know and the world health organization is very much of this new public health movement which is one of the reasons it did so badly on COVID, in my opinion, because it was actually preoccupied with, you know, attacking vaping and stuff like that and sugary drinks. Um, but it's back on course now, having weathered that storm. So, uh, yeah, so the World Health Organization pushes this stuff around. Mike Bloomberg, the former, you know, New York City mayor, is a multi-billionaire and fanatic on any status. He pays people all over the world to lobby for sugary drinks, taxes and vaping flavor bans and that kind of stuff. And I think one of the reasons it keeps spreading, I mean, maybe I will grant that some of these people involved genuinely believe what they're doing, but I think a lot of the politicians uh, either find it very difficult to stand up to these people, even though these people are really very small in number. And quite honestly, all you have to do is just ignore them and eventually they will really go away. Um, they Anyway, they capitulate to these groups and often quite willingly because you tend to get politicians who pick up a particular cause and it gives them quite a bit of notoriety. And that particularly happens as a result of another Blair invention, which was the Minister for Public Health, which didn't exist until Blair came along and created it around about 1999. Um, and pretty much every public health minister, because um, they don't have a lot to do, quite honestly, every public health minister... It means firstly immediately surrounded by all these lobbyists from various single issue activist groups, um, and the department itself is full filled with like bureaucrats activists who want to change various things and completely bought into the new public health narrative, um, and they um, they they pick you know they pick on one of these issues and it gets them on the front of the paper quite a bit for a while. And they tend, usually, because it's a junior post, they tend to be relatively obscure people who become more famous for having, you know, champions something like playing packaging for tobacco. I do want, I, I, 
I doubt I'm going to persuade you on this, but if I can just stick up for a second for the smoking ban. I mean, you talked about how these things are a kind of a social contagion almost. And I do think that the smoking ban has helped a lot of people. I can speak from personal experience. I, I was a, a smoker, a sort of, you know, 10 a day um, person. And I found it pretty easy to quit because it was just less of a social thing after the ban. It was, you know, I used to be able to smoke in the pub and then I couldn't anymore. And then quitting wasn't difficult. I wonder if you see any benefits at all from kind of changing the atmosphere that uh, and the, the kind of the social acceptability of these things, which do have uh, negative impacts on your health. No, I don't think it's raw at all. And, you know, uh, I, I I was a smoker at the time. I never said I was going to quit as a result of the ban. I quit a few years later when I switched to vaping. But I did know people who said, like, what you're saying there is like, well, it'd be great because I'm going to stop smoking. Now. And none of them did. Um, not even temporarily, as I recall. Um, and even if they did, why do you have to drag us into your misery? You know, why, why does the whole society have to change just because you, you lack willpower? You know, we wouldn't accept it if, if a bunch of former alcoholics went around saying, you know, I can't walk past a pub without being tempted to have a drink, therefore pubs have to be closed down. We would obviously say that's um, way beyond what should, what should be happening in a free society. Um, I mean, you, you are right in the sense that you've... you've correctly identified why the smoking ban was introduced. It was introduced for paternalistic reasons. It was to stop people smoking. It wasn't really to protect bar staff from secondhand smoke, which was a claim, half of which smoke anyway. Um, and, you know, even if you wanted to set up a pub called the Smokers Arms and employ no one but smokers and ban non-smokers from coming in, you couldn't allow smoking. You know, it was way, way over the top. And in fact, most countries um, do have significant exemptions to the smoking ban. Um, so that, you know, everyone can be accommodated. But because, and that was originally the plan, if you remember, with the uh, Labour manifesto in 2005, it was going to be what they called uh, wet lead pubs were going to be exempt. In other words, if you sold food, then you couldn't allow smoking. If you didn't serve food, you could allow smoking. Um, and it was a bit of an arbitrary distinction, but at least it would offer choice. And also private members clubs are allowed to, uh, would have been allowed to allow smoking. But that didn't happen because, and this is very telling, Action on Smoking and Health went to the, the pub tray, went to the big pub co's. Most of their pubs sell food, right? The wet lead pubs tend to be small independent pubs as a rule. And they said to them, everyone's going to start going to these small wet lead pubs or they're going to join private members clubs. And so the pub trade got together with the anti-smoking people to campaign for a smoking ban to create what they called a level playing field. Um, but it was just rent-seeking, really, um, on, on their behalf. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, it's interesting. We often, I think one of the great myths about the corporate world, particularly among a certain breed of Guardian reader is that they hate regulation and so on. But that strikes me as a very good example of how certain types of large, be it kind of cartel like organizations like that or big companies, it actually benefits them to have all this petty fogging stuff and kind of puts up barriers to smaller companies being able to produce rival products. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, minimum price example of that. You know, you had some of the biggest pub chains. I won't go in a green king if I can help it, um, because they they in favour of um, they're in favour of minimum pricing for blatantly self interested reasons. I mean, just shamelessly self interested reasons. Um, and I think that you know, I guess you know, businesses have to do what businesses have to do. And if you've got a an overwieldy state that's going to ban things, I, I suppose it's only natural that you would try and profit from that. Um, but I. You know, I, I think actually, even from their perspective, it's it's not very wise to get into bed with the temperance movement on anything, right? These are not your friends. They will happily betray you. Um, the modelling done for minimum pricing didn't just model a minimum price for the off-trade. They also modelled a higher minimum price for the on-trade. They're not going after pubs at the moment, the temperance lobby, because that's not where people are buying the drink. You know, it's like the, the I can't remember the guy's name in the 19... 19- 30s a bank robber said why, why do you rob banks because that's where the money is you know they go after the supermarkets because that's where the booze is being predominantly sold but they used to go after the pubs when that was where people did the drinking and they will go after pubs again so um yeah the, the it kind of nauseates me really to see these sickening boot bootleggers and baptist type uh, uh hookups um i think they're ultimately self-defeating i'd like to see industry grow a backbone but you're quite right that they often like regulation or if they don't like it they very soon get used to it you know it's quite difficult to get anybody in in any of these industries interested in stuff that's already happened i think it's quite important to evaluate these things and to see whether they've worked or not because they usually haven't but once the once it's in there you know it's like the um the thing i mentioned before about the supermarkets promotion so they're not allowed to to have their high fat sugar assault food um at the at the entrance at the checkout at the end of aisle even um and when liz truss was briefly prime minister remember that um there was every sign that she was going to get rid of this law but it was due to come in in october last year and she'd only just become prime minister so it was unclear whether it would be introduced or not particularly by that stage you know she had bigger fish to fry i think trying to cling on um but i understand that at least one supermarket chain was lobbying to keep it 
because they'd spent loads of money getting ready for it. And I had not quite sure why it cost fifty million pounds to move a few things around, but apparently it did. And they kind of fell for the sunk cost fallacy and thought we've already spent all this money, so we might as well do it. Um, and they also, I guess, thought that it might hinder their competitors a little bit. But I think mainly, and this would be a very interesting thing to do an analysis of, they quite like it because people walk around the supermarket more because they can't find what they're looking for. And when they start walking, it's why the eggs are always hidden in a back corner of the supermarket, right? Because it's one thing everybody wants to buy, but you've got to walk everywhere to find the damn things. And similarly, now that um, you know the, the treats aren't there in the entrance when you come in people start looking around for them and then when they find them they find a whole load of other sinful products down the sin aisle and they 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 buy more of them that's what i've heard i can well believe that that is exactly what would happen uh and so you have there a public policy which is not only effectively supported by the big corporations that these people are supposed to be opposed to uh but is also um completely counterproductive in terms of the the so-called, you know, or supposed public health benefit. Yeah, and I think it's interesting how consumers don't necessarily behave how, you know, your public health philosophy kings, as you call them, might expect. So I think you wrote an article for us a while ago on, on minimum pricing. And, and it was that it has in fact led to a buckfast boom in Scotland, an already popular drink um, north of the border becoming even more popular because people switch to more expensive and stronger drinks rather than just drinking less, as you might have hoped. Yeah, I mean, Chris, how, how closely linked is the public health state, if you like, to, to the kind of modish nudge unit behavioural science stuff that's become so fashionable in the last sort of 10 years or so? It's, it's become more linked, if you specifically mean the nudge unit, the behavioural insights team, which is now a effectively a, a private company that gets all its money from government contracts. Uh, I mean, kind Almost. of the idea that people can be Well, the idea, not so to... much, actually, because um, they initially, when Nudge came out, when the book Nudge came out in 2008, the behavioural economics kind of Bible for a while, and it was one of these books that, you know, swings in and out of fashion, but for a year or two, everyone's reading it and talking about it, and Ed Miliband and people are going, oh, have you read Nudge? And... Um, and I read it, and I didn't actually particularly object to it. I thought some of it was quite interesting. I just thought most of it was fairly trivial. And if you actually look at how many policy recommendations are actually in that book, there's very, very few of them. There's literally like two or three. I think it's, you know, um, automatic opt-in for pensions, which we now do in this country, um, and kind of automatic opt-in for organ donation which I think we also do, do we? Or Wales certainly does it anyway. Uh, that had unintended consequences, but anyhow, it's a story for another day. Um, there isn't that much in it because they are pretty libertarian people, Thaler and Sunstein, and they're not joking when they say that they don't want things to be banned and they don't want to change incentives. In other words, you can't tax something or you can't make it worse, like food reformulation. So... Um, the penny eventually dropped in public health. They originally were quite keen on the idea because they liked the sound of nudging people because it sounds a bit like shoving them. Uh, and then one of them must have read the book and said, actually, there's not much mileage in this because, you know. Yeah. The, the instruments are a lot blunter, I think, from the way you've described it. In public health? Yeah. Yeah, much, much blunter. Like ban it. Stop it. Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, public yeah. health is all about banning things and taxing them, really. That's what it comes down to. Um, they're not interested in... Um, you know, correcting cognitive biases or 
you know, slightly changing the choice architecture in a way that doesn't restrict freedom. They need to restrict freedom because what they're trying to impose on people is not actually what people want. Whereas well, the that, that's nudge exactly, is that that's things exactly people my want next um, my next question was going to be just to kind of round off this section. We're gonna we're gonna talk a bit about about COVID after, but how downwind of culture do you think these kind of regulations and arm's length bodies are? I mean, is that is there a kind of chicken and egg element where some perhaps frightened or paranoid members of the public really want this stuff and politicians are responding to that? Or is it the other way around where it's, you know, kind of done to people? I think this stuff can, after a bit of um, creative campaigning, create a reasonable amount of support, but it tends to be very shallow support. These issues aren't that big a deal to most people, particularly if they only affect a minority of the public. Um, and that's why you, I don't, that's why I think we haven't seen very much in the way of nanny state action on alcohol, because most people drink alcohol, including most politicians. Um, most people, however, do not smoke, we're a small and dwindling minority. Most people don't gamble online. Most people gamble, but it tends to be things like the lottery or the Grand National, and nobody's talking about doing anything about those. Um, but online gambling, fixed odds betting terminals, are actually played by a fairly small number of people, particularly online slots, which is what the, the anti-gambling people are really going for. So if you've got a small minority of people who tend not to be very politically active anyway, um, then it's quite easy for the majority to, firstly, not really know what it is they're doing. I mean, how many people have actually played a fixed odds betting term or really understand what they are? Nothing. Just you to say that they're crack cocaine and gambling. People say, well, Christ, that sounds awful. Let's ban that, you know? Um, and smoking, of course, is unpopular for all sorts of reasons. You know, some of them perfectly rational. Um, so if you get some public health person come up saying, this is our new idea for clamping down on smoking or gambling, uh, or indeed child obesity, and it usually tends to be the children emphasised rather than the rest of us, even though it's the rest of us, who's, uh, you know, the targets in practice, then what incentive do people have to oppose it, really? You know, um, so yeah, you generally see opinion polls supporting this stuff, sometimes by quite a large majority, but they are only being given really one side of the story. We're not hearing about the possible unintended consequences very much. You know, the opponents of, of these policies, like ourselves, are a very small group. The main opposition tends to be industry, who nobody trusts, and they're not always very good at getting the message out there anyway. So, um, and so it, it marches on, just one thing after another. Um, it's kind of feel-good politics, isn't it? You know, people feel yeah. better for, you know, okay, we've, we've dealt with I that issue. I just want to get one of, my, um, one of my big gripes with that whole kind of polling-based policy is that, like you say, most people unprompted would never say, mm. oh, I want to do this, that, or the other. If you stick a question in front of them, they're forced to have an opinion on it, then, yeah, they might be like, oh, I'm in favour. Boom, front page. 70% of people want this. It's like, no, they don't. Yeah, it'd be much better to, to say, right, what do you think of the top, 10 or 20 issues yeah. facing the country and then see how many people actually put down gambling or obesity or even smoking. And as you say, easy to support something that you don't think would affect you. And it's important to note that all of these kind type of interventions tend to be incredibly unprogressive because it tends to hit the poorest and, you know, the, the least able to afford any rise in the price of alcohol or gambling or whatever it might be um, the hardest. Um, but perhaps we should... Move on. Sort of, I guess the biggest public health intervention of recent years that has touched all of our lives has been COVID and the response to it. 
Do you think that has kind of fundamentally changed people's attitude to public health? Or do you see this as part of a continuum of the sort of things that we've been talking about? I don't see it as a continuum. I do see it as being something very different. And I think most people do see it as something different. Um, I kind of had, yeah, sort of, you know, just leaving aside the actual pandemic and, you know, the, the, the problems it, it caused itself, I had kind of a hope and a fear about the long-term impact about the pandemic. My hope was that people would realise now what an actual public health issue is, what an actual public health problem is. And what a real epidemic is, for that matter, because we hear about epidemics of binge drinking and all sorts of things, but it's always basically metaphorical. Uh, then we had a real public health um, epidemic and it needed to be dealt with. And I think there was a justification for coercive measures there, as I've always said, actually. Um, now, the, there's a kind of question of science and, and ethics about how far those those measures should have gone. And in many ways, I think they went too far. But um, I think the basic principle that you, you can justify coercion if you're dealing with an infectious disease that kills people is not all that controversial. Um, so I hoped that people would now distinguish between a real public health issue and a fake public health issue. And that, you know, what, what people eat or, or drink or smoke is not actually a public health issue at all. It's a private health matter. Um, and a public health issue is not just, you know, lots of people's health issues put together, right? My fear was that um, yeah, that having accepted unprecedented coercive action, people would accept the same kind of coercive action with these other private health uh, matters and activities. And I think my fears have been borne out more than my hopes. I think my even at the time, I, I, I thought that's probably what would happen. Um, we saw almost immediately during the pandemic the anti-drinking or anti smoking lobby would start using the word pandemic to describe smoking and drinking obesity pandemic to try and tap into that 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 thought um i think possibly the only good thing that's come out of it from my perspective is that people i think now or at least a lot of people are more skeptical about public health modeling <laughs> because the, the the models the models were not great certainly in the in 2021 we'll never really know how realistic the initial models were but in 2021 we actually got to see what would happen in a do nothing scenario because the government kept doing nothing and the models are always way out and given that so many of the nanny state policies are justified on the basis of modeling minimum pricing being a classic example and that's basically been disproven now from what's happened in scotland but also the sugar tax and then they do retrospective modeling if there's no obvious improvement in things, you know, eyeballing the data, they will do, you know, a retrospective regression model and say, well, this problem might seem like it got worse, but actually it would have got even worse if it hadn't been for the policy and this kind of you know, fairy tale science, really. Um, so hopefully people are a bit more skeptical about public health modelling. Um, there are probably people, I'm sure, who are more skeptical about public health movement in general, but unfortunately, I suspect quite a few of those are nutters who, you know, don't think that COVID was real. Um, so they're not much use to me. Um so yeah, that's my take on on. Yeah, I'm 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 glad you mentioned nutters because this is actually my next question was about you've had a fair few kind of run-ins, especially on Twitter, with what have come to be known as the smileys. Um, now, just for our listeners who are not refreshing their social media feeds every five minutes, 
um, like a lot of us are, frankly. I mean, who are the Smileys and, and what do they believe? And how have their beliefs changed as well? Because I think that's an interesting question. They've pivoted from one oh, thing to another. they've pivoted a lot. They've pivoted a lot. They're all about chemtrails and stuff these days um, and, and being pro-Russian. The word smileys, which I, I might have coined myself, I can't honestly can't remember. But at one point, they started, this is the online, you know, uh, lockdown skeptic, COVID skeptic types, started putting the smiley emoji in their profile. Um, not 100% why. I think it was something to do with mask wearing, saying that you know, we're still smiling beneath our masks or what have you. Um, and then, then they adopted it then as like the profile pic as well, which got really weird when there was thousands of them doing it because... I was, I guess, it was supposed they were trying to emphasize their individuality, but actually it had the exact opposite effect. You just got the impression of being assaulted in my case because I was arguing with these people by essentially the same person because they all had the same profile pic and they all said exactly the same thing, and they still do. Um, so for a while in 2020, it was all about how the PCR tests have a massive false positive uh, ratio, and actually these people are not. They haven't got COVID. COVID's gone away. There's not going to be a second wave. And um, uh, it's it's nothing to worry about. It's all misdiagnosis. And then there was obviously a massive second wave. Uh, but by that time, the vaccines had come in. So they pivoted um, quite quickly to being anti-vax. Um, what was that line back then? Oh, I suppose it was all, you know, 5G microchips, Bill Gates and all that stuff. It very, it very rapidly became insane. I mean, um, I think for a brief window of time in 2020, there's a perfectly reasonable case to have a kind of lockdown skeptic movement to genuinely look at the costs and benefits of lockdown and see if it could be justified. And that, to be fair to Toby Young, is what he tried to do initially, way back, I think, in about April, May 2020. And he got shouted down by all the frownies who are the, you know, the you know, double masking, blue heart type people who want to lock down forever, who are just as bad as the Smileys, I have to say. Um, that was a reasonable question. But then Toby's blog very quickly became um, just denial of, of COVID as, as an issue, denying that lockdowns worked at all. That was a kind of crossing the Rubicon, where they essentially said, well, lockdowns don't even reduce transmission in the short term. Uh, you know, even if everyone's staying in the house, it won't make any difference to, you know, a disease that is transmitted from person to person. Um, and then it got basically, you know, anti-vax, and it has been ever since. I and mean, a lot of people have veered off into even more nuttier stuff, most of which I forget about because it, it comes and goes. But yeah, chemtrails are genuinely part of it for a while. You get people taking photos of the sky and saying, wow, look at all these chemtrails spraying vaccines i think is the defibrillators they seem to have a problem with yeah is it what defibrillators <laughs> yeah defibrillators um yes so now the current thing is that um the excess deaths that have been seen in britain and many other countries at the moment this winter are actually delayed vaccine injuries um i mean the reality is most people i don't think have had a vaccine at all for about a year. I certainly haven't. Um, and the mRNA leaves the body within a couple of weeks of having the vaccine. So it's quite difficult to see how it would suddenly kill you a year or two later. Um, and there's no evidence whatsoever that you know, the excess mortality has got anything to do with the vaccines or that they are 
even heart attacks, you know, which has just been assumed by the Smileys. But they, they're claiming tremendous victory at the moment. They must be just watching totally different media to the rest of us, I think. Uh, I can only assume that there's a Russell Brand rumble or something out there in which he says, you know, wow, we were right about everything. Because they, they've convinced themselves that they've been totally vindicated and all the vaccinated are very worried people now and regretting ever ever getting the jab. And maybe you just go out around you know around town and everyone still, still seems pretty chill but they live in a very different universe to us now um yeah crazy crazy stuff uh not getting any better i do wonder where it all end I, I mean i don't know how much longer of nothing really happening has to continue for until they accept that you know covid was a problem we had vaccines for it and then it wasn't a problem anymore and we've all moved on yeah, I mean, how much do you think this is just a kind of crazy online conspiracy theory of the type, you know, that have been throughout history, it's just amplified by being online? Or how much do you think it's a serious problem? I mean, we've got sort of people like Andrew Bridgen, you know, actual elected politicians are signing up and amplifying this stuff. Um, how big of a problem do you think it is? Um, uh, it's certainly bigger than your average conspiracy theory, and social media is undoubtedly responsible for for most of that. I don't think it's a massive... Well, I don't think it's a public health problem at all, because this campaign to stop the vaccine rollout happened you know, long after the vaccine rollout had virtually been stopped anyway, because everyone who'd been vaccinated got the vaccines. Um, so they were really shutting the door after the horse had bolted. It, it may well, in the long term, undermine confidence in mRNA cancer treatments, which is probably the next thing to come off the, um, you know, come out of mRNA research. And that would be a big problem, but not for me, only for them, because I mean, cancer is not infectious disease. So it's like, if they don't want to take treatment for cancer, then it's just Darwin Award stuff, really. Um, but yeah, in terms of, yeah, it is kind of worrying when you see someone like Andrew Bridgen um, parroting all this kind of stuff. When you see Matt Hancock being uh, well, verbally assaulted, I would say. I, I believe this guy's been yeah, charged with assault. Yeah, I didn't see any but... physical assault. So. No, I didn't. Weird, isn't it? But yeah, he got um, shouted at by some some nutcase. And there are a lot of these people around. It's not just it's not just genuinely not just people in their basements. Um, yeah, yeah. Most, I, most I encounter it in real life. Like, right, exactly. Way more often than any or like variants on this theme. Like I've definitely I've had lots of people who haven't had a vaccine who will tell you it hasn't been tested properly. You know, all the kind of stuff you Experimental read. Experimental gene therapy. Yeah. Or like some of them, well, they sound more reasonable and they'll say like, oh, um, you know, the kind of Djokovic line of like, I'm not putting anything in my body. I don't like. It's a kind of, it's of a piece with the sort of woo-woo Californian juice diet medicine movement sometimes as well. So there's all sorts of different strands to it. I think that's what makes it so difficult to kind of pin down as a... Oh, it's constantly changing. Uh, and there are some people have more extreme versions of it than others um the world economic forum stuff seems to have caught on quite a bit i mean you're talking full-blown david ike type conspiracies really with a lot of this stuff and with you know with social media you just never know do you most people obviously aren't on twitter uh, and you can seek out anything on twitter and go ha look at this idiot but i mean who is he you know some guy with like nine followers and he tweeted a picture of what he thinks are chemtrails what a fool but there are more, you know, if you watch GB News, about half the people on GB News are kind of in that bracket, aren't they, really? We uh, no, no, I mean presenters. I'm talking about presenters and some good people on GB News. But um, 
they certainly are propagating. I saw Nigel Farage yesterday tweeting something about some incredibly obscure amateur rugby player in, in Australia who very sadly just dropped dead for, for causes unknown the other day and said this seems to be happening more and more. It's pure confirmation bias and the Biden-Meinhof phenomenon. I wrote about this on the Substack last week. Once people start looking for things, <laughs> they will find them everywhere. And sportsmen in particular have always, in pretty small numbers, but uh, you know, higher than the general population, drop dead, usually from um, reasons related to the heart. But they don't get an enormous amount of coverage because they're not they're not famous, right? You know, Christian Eriksson collapsed. That was a that was a big deal. But can you mention any other like famous footballers who have even collapsed, let alone died since COVID came along? There haven't been any. You need to scour the the leagues of the whole world in order to find anyone, which you could do any year. It's always it's always happened. But it's interesting to see people's um, you know psychological. Yeah, you can't read about these psychological ticks and to see one in real life as we are at the moment this Biden-Meinhof phenomenon related to sudden death of athletes is is quite interesting well Chris I mean we would love to sit here and uh, chew the fat uh, for many many more hours um, but we're going to round it off Public there health conjunctions wouldn't allow us yeah exactly the, ban the fat exactly um Chris, thank you so much uh, for coming on. It's been a, an extremely uh, engaging conversation and I would encourage all our listeners to pay attention to Chris's Substack, his Twitter feed, and of course, all his pieces on CapEx. Thank you all as ever at home for listening to the podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please leave us a review on whichever platform you get the podcast on. And of course, just tell your friends by good old fashioned word of mouth. Um, do tune in next Friday for another episode of the CapEx podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.